I asked Beverly this morning on the way in if she knew how old or how long ago the movie Braveheart was put out. Some of y'all weren't born then. Uh, the year was 1995. It seems like it was yesterday to me. What's amazing is, do you realize that's almost 30 years ago? Wow. Uh, there's kind of an epilogue at the end of that movie uh, where uh, Robert the Bruce tells the, the continuation of the story, but almost certainly the high point of the movie is the scene before that, where William Wallace is laid out on the rack. He, is, he has been hung almost to his death. He is about to be drawn and quartered, and the axe is about to descend upon him, and they ask him to confess before he dies, to save his mortal soul. And you know what he says. He shouts it out with his last breath. I don't know if it happened that way in 1305, but it, it's very dramatic and very powerful. And what is the word? What does he scream? Freedom. Freedom. Um, give me what? Liberty? Or give me death. You know, in our national anthem, <clears throat> it kind of bugs me when people don't just sing it straightforwardly. You know, they have to have their own little, does that bother you? It does me, you know. Um, but the last phrase, or the land of the what? Free and the home of the, the brave. The Declaration of Independence in 1776 really emphasizes, I think, personal freedom and liberty when it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all, and we say, I like to say persons, but it says men, are created equal and that they're endowed. This is not a social contract. We do not get our rights by agreeing with one another that we have those rights. This part is not a social contract that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I know the 14th Amendment changes that wording. We got a little bit of feedback. Um, it changes it, it's life, liberty, and what? Property. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That really focuses, I think, on individual liberty, but it is about 13 years later in the Constitution where the framers and the founders of the framers of that document and founders of our nation really bring it into the collective and relational world. It's not just individual liberty, but we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect individuality, is that what it says? No. Union, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, not just to defend myself, to promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of what? Liberty. That is freedom to ourselves and our posterity. So it's not just for our generation, not just the past generation, but for those that are yet to come. We do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. 
So we see in those two documents a kind of tension between individual liberty and freedom for our nation. You know, freedom that works, freedom that works has two beneficiaries. First of all, self and individual liberty, personal rights are protected, and especially in the Bill of Rights, which almost wasn't passed. And it understands that every conscience is individual. Every conscience is sacred before God. Every conscience is inviolable. That is, I cannot make you believe a certain way. Oh, I might use brainwashing and that sort of thing, but uh, it is not within my power, really, to change the core of your being. Well, that's because we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. But the other beneficiary, of course, is society, and that's the collective liberty, the common defense, the general welfare, and not just for ourselves, but our posterity. Freedom that works also is accountable. It's accountable to self. Each person has a conscience, and each person individually should understand what common decency is, common public decency, and they should act according to their conscience then to abide by that. We're accountable as a society. And there is then this dimension of the social contract about which John Locke spoke, where we work together, not just for my good, but for the common good. So we're accountable. But if we take the Declaration of Independence seriously, we also understand that we are also accountable to our Creator, answerable to Him, even though there are many that in our country even, that would not say this is true. We believe in the founding documents of our nation, that our founding fathers understood this, most of them. They were answerable to our Creator for what He has given us. We're answerable for the way we live our lives, the way we exercise our liberty, and for the pursuit of happiness. So another dimension of what makes freedom work is not only who benefits and the accountability, but it has to do with this idea of pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness. I would say it has maybe four dimensions to it. It has to do with our being, who we are, our knowing, what we understand. It has to do with what we do, but beyond that, it also has to do with taking ownership, what we own. The pursuit of happiness has to do with becoming all that we're made to be, pursuing who God created us to be in its fullness. Knowing has to do with discernment, that is, discovering truth and using it wisely, pursuit of happiness, not just through science, but through all kinds of disciplines. Doing has to do with accomplishment, and that is achieving good, and hopefully, in the context we're speaking today, achieving good for the common good. Pursuit of happiness also has to do with owning, not just being and doing and knowing, but, but also owning. That is, I put it this way, enjoyment. We're to enjoy those rights. We're to enjoy our liberty. We're to enjoy our freedom. Enjoyment of self. That is, properly satisfying the feelings and desires that we have, they're normal. Properly satisfying even the passions and the aspirations that we hold. That's legitimate. 
Every person ought to enjoy oneself in those pursuits. Uh, It has to do with enjoying things, what we possess, being good stewards of what we receive and what we possess and what we give as a result. Pursuit of happiness also has to do with ownership of something that goes beyond self and it goes beyond things, and it has to do with relationships. Owning relationships properly. Living in wholesome, mutual, productive interaction with other people. That's how I would describe pursuit of happiness. Being who you're created to be fully. Learning and understanding the truth and applying it wisely. Doing those things that accomplish the common good. And owning and enjoying ourselves and our society and relationships. I think, for me, that describes, I think, a kind of proper perspective on freedom. Freedom in our country, I think, though, has gone to seed. Uh, We've gone from liberty to license. And you know the adjective for license is licentious. There's an overemphasis today in America, and not just in America, we're not the only ones guilty of this, but especially in America, we're guilty of an overemphasis on personal rights. It is the freedom of each believer, but it's also the freedom of all believers together. There is, a, I think, an emphasis in our nation today on self. Is that an understatement? Self-gratification. We live in a culture of privilege, not just rights, entitlement, And we've said it several times over the past three months, identity politics, identity politics that polarizes the nation. I think all of us would agree that minority groups, marginalized groups, groups that have not had a voice in the past need to have a voice. But we've gotten to the point where the emphasis on the rights of each of those groups has polarized our nation. I believe in social justice and so do you. I'm against racism, and I believe you are too. But some of the movements in our nation have become so radicalized that it polarizes our nation. Race and Black Lives Matter. I believe an awful lot of what Black Lives Matter is about. I do not believe in the radicalization of it, as I've said from the pulpit. Lesbians, gays, bisexuals, Transgender and the Q, they use it very publicly, queer word. That movement, I believe that every person should have full expression of their rights according to the Constitution, and we should not inhibit those. But of course, it has become a very, very divisive and polarizing issue. Feminism and women's rights, since Roe v. Wade was overturned earlier last year by Dobson versus Jackson, It has even more polarized our nation. There are 26 states that not only continue abortion, but 10 of them, 10 of those 26, have expanded abortion rights. 13 of them have continued to make it, beyond that, have continued to make it legal without expanding them. And three of the states then make it accessible without legal protection. 26 states on one side and 24 on the other, a divided nation. 
So what I mean here is identity politics, all of these issues have divided us. One of the reasons is because there's such an emphasis on personal rights, and my group, you see, must have its rights. There's a diminishing sense of accountability. There's an overemphasis on individual freedom, relativism, uh, my truth is the truth, an eroding moral base in our nation. And what I mean by that is a lack of a sense of public decency, <laughs> what's right and what's wrong. Little respect for public common decency. And if you question that, just run the channels on TV. There's an, an, an opposition to uh, many of the common mores today because those are old rules. They're oppressive. They oppress me. They suppress my individual freedom. In our nation today, I think there's an unwillingness for people to sacrifice to preserve those rights and freedoms, and certainly to compromise for the common good. It's almost as if the rights today in America are a zero-sum game. And what I mean by that is, in order for me to have my rights, you need to give up your rights. In order for you to have your rights, I have to give up my rights. It's almost like there is a winner loser atmosphere in which both sides demonize each other. I think today in our nation there is very little gratitude, much less attribution that God has given us these rights. Very little gratitude to God and accountability to God. We presume that we have these rights. There's a distorted sense of happiness. What is the pursuit of happiness? Well, you heard me say, I think that we ought to enjoy what God's given us. But today, there's a distorted sense of happiness because possessions have become the measure of social well-being. Wealth has become the measure of happiness. Americans are consumers. Our consumer society is the biggest in the world. $14 trillion a year. 68% of the American economy is devoted to consumerism, and a third of the Global spending is done by Americans on consumer goods. Now, you know, we're all consumers, I get it, but you know what I'm saying. In America, there is an overemphasis on materialism. The average American last year, average American spent $60,000 on consumer products. Wow. I think there's an overemphasis on pleasure, hedonism or hedonism, however you want to pronounce it, and along with that, escapism. In 21 states, marijuana has been legalized, not just for medicinal purposes, but for what's the term? Recreational use. An emphasis on hedonism, alcohol. Sale of alcohol in this nation, $250 billion annually, and Every person average in this nation drinks two and a half gallons of alcohol a year. I don't know where my two and a half gallons went. <laughs> $27 billion annually in health costs as a result of the abuse of alcohol. Hedonism, this pursuit of pleasure. Sex education. Planned Parenthood advocates comprehensive sex education beginning at which age? Kindergarten. Hmm. In our nation today, in some of our schools, teachers are encouraging pre-adolescents, children, 
to question their gender identity and even ask for sex change operations, even before they become teens. The porn industry in our nation, the income from the porn industry is bigger than NBC, ABC, and CBS put together. It's bigger than Major League Baseball and the NFL and the NBA put together. The porn industry, global net worth around the world is $97 billion a year. And the number three consumer of broadband live streaming is the porn industry after only Google and Netflix. We live in a worldwide society, folks, where there's an emphasis on pleasure and hedonism and freedom has gone to seed. One of the results of this is increasing suicide rates. America has the highest suicide rate of the top 10 wealthiest nations in the world. A suicide every 11 minutes in our nation, 132 a day, and it is the third leading cause of young people between ages 15 and 24, and 10 of our states now have assisted suicide being made legal, including Washington, D.C. So, folks, freedom appropriately applied is a good thing. Freedom gone to seed is tearing our country apart. I want to share with you five principles about freedom this morning that come from a biblical perspective, I think, that address address this issue. The first, and we know this, is true freedom comes from whom? True freedom comes from whom? It comes from God through whom? Through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need second, third, fourth, and fifth. There's some things that we don't need to let happen with freedom. One of these is we don't need to let freedom give way to worldliness. And I've already alluded to that a moment ago. Secondly, we don't need to let freedom lead us back into slavery. Thirdly, we don't need to surrender our freedom to those who are false teachers of freedom. And then finally, we do not need to let our freedom become a stumbling block for others. So the first of those, true freedom comes only from Jesus Christ. We say that and we believe it, but what does it mean? Well, Every form of enslavement, every form of bondage, every form of social injustice in our nation traces its roots back to one simple three-letter word, and that is sin. We are in bondage in one way or another, whether it is human trafficking or it's slavery or many of these other, all these other ills that we've talked about are due to sin, of course. All enslavement originates with sinful disobedience to God. We know this. The scripture tells us that every person, every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth is a sinner. And because of that, every person at one point or another in their life is enslaved to sin and they are destined to reap the results of their sin, and that is to die and to die eternally. So true liberty... When we talk about freedom in a political context, when we talk about liberty in a social context, it fundamentally and ultimately is a spiritual matter at its very core. And most of the people in our country would not agree with that. But they need to understand that. The ills of our society are rooted in sin and enslavement to it. And so therefore the source of all liberty is the Lord himself. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord... It's the Spirit. 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? There is liberty. What does this mean? It means that, that Christ offers to redeem us from sin. He has died on the cross. He has shed his blood, and he has paid the price. Some would say the ransom, the payment for our sin, for our sinful disobedience. And the scripture tells us, therefore, those of us who follow Christ have been redeemed. We have been bought. We have been purchased. We have been ransomed from sin with a price, and the price is his blood. And when we surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he then does what? He sets us free. He sets us free from slavery to sin and death, and he makes us slaves. He sets us free from all of those bad things, and then he makes us servants of the Lord. You see, life in Christ sets us free from sin and death. Paul tells us to the Romans. For the law of the spirit of the life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things that are fleshly. But those who live according to the Spirit, they then set their minds on the Spirit. For the mind set on flesh, worldliness, is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So then what he does is he redeems us from sin and death, and he sets us free from all the worldliness and the sin around us. And when we follow Christ, he gives us this promise. In the book of John, he tells us that when we follow him, then when we continue in his word, we don't just profess, but we obey and we follow his word. Then we are truly his disciples. We're his disciples indeed. And we will know the what? We'll know the truth. And truth isn't just a concept. Truth isn't just an idea. Truth isn't something that's just written in a book. Truth is the living being of Jesus Christ himself. For he says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. And we know the truth. We know the person of the truth. And we also know the, all the truth he teaches. And the truth sets us free. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Uh, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains. He is always there. He is always there to set us free. So if the son has made you free, if Jesus Christ has set us free, then we are free indeed. That's what it means when we say that the only true source of freedom is Jesus Christ. He sets us free from the bondage of sin and the consequences of death, but when we follow him then... We follow the Word of God, and it sets us free on a daily basis from the necessity to sin and all of the consequences that flow out of that. So now there's some things that we shouldn't let freedom be or become. One of those is don't let your freedom or our freedom give way to worldliness. And that's the text that is in the bulletin, Galatians 5, 13 through 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For you see, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, in this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound familiar? From two weeks ago. You see, the context of this passage is that Christ, as we have said, has ransomed us and he has freed us from three things. 
When we are set free by Christ, we're set free from three things. The elemental things of the world, he says in Galatians 5, we have been set free from those. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We're no longer dependent for our happiness on worldliness, that is, fleshly pursuits. Worldliness does not satisfy the deepest longings for us anymore. We're no longer slaves then to the elemental things of the world and the prince of the world that tempts us with them. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't want the things that the world has to offer us to sustain us, but we're not ultimately dependent on a worldly attitude, the elemental things of the world. We're freed, secondly, from sin and death, as we've already said, no longer hopelessly bound by the necessity to sin. We're no longer bound because of our fallen nature necessarily to sin, but we have been given an internal inheritance, life forever, eternal life that is reserved for us in heaven. So we're not bound to sin and we're not bound to death if we follow Christ. We have eternal life. And then thirdly, he has set us free from something that is pretty insidious. Because we think that once we have been redeemed by Christ, and we're in the church, and we're in the body of Christ, we're, we're okay then. He frees us then from even some of the things that we find in church, from legalism, from deadly legalism. We know from Scripture that we don't earn our salvation by endless, empty works. We're no longer justified by the things that we do, but we are saved by grace through faith, we're not saved through religious rituals by keeping all of the rabbinic code or keeping a list of rules. Now, there are rules by which we live because there's some fundamental things in Scripture that we're to follow. But we're not saved by a list of rules. So we're saved from the elemental things of the world. We're saved then from sin and death. And we're also saved from legalism. When we surrender to Christ as Lord, what happens is, we die to self. We voluntarily give ourselves to Christ, and when we do, then the old flesh nature is put to death. It is crucified with Christ, and we are, as Jesus told Nicodemus, we are born again. And if we follow him, we walk in the spirit. We do not walk in the flesh, and the flesh is another word for worldliness. We continue to have passions and desires, but they are not worldly. They are appropriate passions and desires. And this dying to self is an ongoing process. We know that. It goes from day to day to day. Daily, we are to take up our cross and follow him. Daily, we are to be crucified with Christ. Daily, it is a continued process. And we know what Paul tells us in Romans 7. The old person seeks to rise up. The old fleshly and worldly nature continues to fight to be reborn and to reassert itself. So it's a daily process of walking with Christ. And the meaning of this passage is we have been set free. We have to be careful that we do not give opportunity for that rise to occur again. You see, freedom itself. Freedom itself, when it goes to seed, can become an opportunity for the flesh, he says here. What happens is that opportunity arises again and Satan finds a tiny beachhead in our life and gives us an incentive to sin again and to allow worldliness to creep back into our life and for the old flesh nature then to give rise. And it can seduce us. 
It can seduce us in the name of freedom. It can seduce us in the name of liberty. Well, I ought to be able to do that. And the next thing you know, we're doing that, which isn't really overtly sinful, but it draws us into sinful activity. You see, it's an opportunity. It's a beachhead. And Paul, in this passage, which I have not read the rest of it, lists 17 of those worldly, fleshly impulses that may seem attractive. They may seem like things that we're free to do because we have been redeemed by Christ. And well, they're not really that bad, you see. And Satan disguises these things, these freedoms that we have, then to gain a beachhead in our life. To undermine our hope, it says in this passage, in our eternal inheritance, the kingdom of God. And then he lists those things. And it sounds very much like our society today. Things that damage our relationship with God and things that also undermine peace on earth. Listen to them. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, shameless lust, idolatry, drug addiction, hatred, strife, jealousy, anger, political intrigue, (laughs) and divisiveness, dissension, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, and orgies. That's the result of the beachhead that Satan establishes in our life when he attracts us to those kinds of liberties. That is freedom gone to seed. Now, what Paul says in this passage is instead of allowing Satan to have a beachhead in those things, that what we must do is we must use our freedom appropriately. Use our freedom to bring peace. And how do we do that? By yielding our rights one to another and doing what? loving our neighbors ourselves, and in so doing, we fulfill the whole law. So what he's saying here is we fulfill the second commandment that Christ gave to us, and by following him, we apply the golden rule, and we prove that we love God. In other words, he reduces all of this down to an appropriate view of freedom to make sure that we do not allow that freedom then to turn into worldliness is very simply to do what? To love your neighbor as yourself. If we all did that, Satan's temptation of worldliness would be almost nil. Secondly, he says, do not let our freedom lead back to slavery. And that passage is not in the bulletin. It's from 1 Corinthians 6. In that he says, all things are lawful for me, Hmm. but not all things are what? Profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You see, the context of this passage is that we have been freed not only from sin and death, not only from the elemental things of the world, but we have been freed from that third thing, and that is legalism. We've been saved by grace through faith, and we follow Christ. We're not saved by following rules. We're not saved because we're self-righteous. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. That's the context for the passage. And then what the passage says is this. All things may be lawful, that is allowable or or permissible, but not everything is profitable. What does that mean? It means that if something isn't forbidden in the New Testament as being immoral and against God's law, then it's permissible. It's allowable. 
Even many of the things that some of our religious cultural traditions frown upon. Now, do not misunderstand what I'm about to say. I'm a teetotaler, and I believe I have good reasons for that. But I have brothers and sisters in Christ that drink a little bit of alcohol, okay? Hmm. I'm not looking at anybody right now, okay? (laughs) You know what I'm saying, okay? And, 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 you know, Paul says, drink a little wine for your stomach, okay? Our tradition typically is we frown upon any consumption of alcohol. But, folks, the New Testament does not explicitly forbid that, okay? And I'm not advocating the drinking of alcohol, but you see what I'm saying? There's some people that make these rules then the standard of being a Christ follower. And if we're not careful, we can make that a legalistic kind of thing. One may be allowed to do it. It may be permissible in the New Testament, but it may not be. Here's the other part. It may not be what? Profitable. Tattoos. (laughs) Very clearly in the Old Testament, it's forbidden. There's nothing in the New Testament against it. It may be allowable. It may be permissible. But young people, it's not profitable. Trust me. 70 years from now, that tattoo's not going to look the same. Secular amusements on Sunday. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you, you know, can't go golfing on Sunday or go to the movies or whatever. I know in our Baptist faith and message, we have a statement against basically secular amusements on Sunday. We are, there's a broader principle there. We are to keep the Sabbath holy. So you get my point. There's some things that may be permissible, but they may not be profitable. Profitable, the word actually means to carry along together, to be expedient to the common load, and it can have two meanings here. One is, it may not be good for the common good, for the common good out there. The other is, some things that we do carry along other implications. They carry along with them temptations to go further beyond what we're doing. Paul's example that he uses here is meat offered to idols. He says, it's permissible. The new covenant doesn't, doesn't forbid it. It's just meat entering the body. <laughs> and Jesus said what? It's not what goes into the body that defiles the body. It's what comes out of the body. Jesus himself said that. But meat offered to idols in Paul's day, was it profitable? You see, it might give appearance of doing evil to others around. And he said, therefore, you know, I'm not going to do it. Not only that, it might lead some that would go to those feasts then to begin to participate in idolatrous worship. And that then is sin. So what's Paul's command here? He says, in every instance, flee immorality. And that what I mean, I think he means is flee any appearance of evil, anything that might suggest that you have compromised your witness. Why? Always show the world where your allegiance lies. Never give the world a reason to accuse you of evil. And that is a passage from which Heather read this morning. Where Peter says, act as free persons. Yes, act with your liberty. Act as free persons, but not let, do not let your freedom be used as a covering for evil. But use it as bond slaves of God. Remember, you're a servant of God. There's another reason. It's not just the appearance of evil, but we need to stay away from the fringe of immorality. Flee it. Flee it. Don't flirt with it. Do not give Satan even the tiniest beachhead or opportunity for temptation. So if there's something that may look like it's okay to do, look at it very carefully and see if you're on the fringe of being tempted to go further. It may be lawful, but it may be unhealthy. 
It may be something that leads to an addiction. And that's what he says, I will not let anything master me. Hmm. Things that pollute the body violate the temple of the Holy Spirit and of God. So you see, the point is, we have to be careful with the freedoms that we have because if we're not, it may lead then eventually back to our enslavement to sin. And there's a third thing that we should not let our freedom do. It should, we should not let it then be surrendered to false teachers. Multiple warnings in Scripture. Jesus says, watch out. False prophets are going to come and they're going to be in sheep's clothing, but they're really wolves. Paul uses the same analogy to the elders of Ephesus that meet him at Miletus, where he says, I know that after I leave, there's savage wolves that are going to come in your midst, and they're going to deceive the flock. John, in 1 John, says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits, because you see false prophets have gone into the world. Succinctly, here's the point. There are false prophets out there today, some of them even in the name of Christ. There are many false prophets, not in the name of Christ, that would deceive us through the avenue of freedom. And Peter puts it this way, Heather read it. They are sprit bush, the passage just beyond what she read. These are springs without water and their mists driven by storm, from whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly, that is, worldly desires, about which we have spoken, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them, okay, listen, promising them what? Promising them freedom, while they themselves have become slaves to corruption. And then he concludes by saying this, for by what a person is overcome, by this that person is enslaved. There are false teachers out there. They're all around us. And they proclaim that what they want you to do and that what they want me to do or this, this plan or this policy or this, this whatever it is, agenda that they have, will lead to freedom. Beware. Often it leads to enslavement. And then finally, don't let our freedom become a stumbling block. And I think the principle is obvious here. 1 Corinthians 8 says this, Paul, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And what, of course, he's talking about there is there are folks that are not quite as mature in their understanding of the new covenant, maybe, and they are susceptible to temptations. When they look at our example, they may misunderstand our behavior, and it may become a stumbling block. We have to be careful about our human religious traditions, any one of those that restrict the Holy Spirit. But but some of those things are traditions that we have, that we follow, even though they're permissible in Scripture, because we want to avoid any appearance of evil. We have to be very careful when we go against those traditions then, when we have the liberty to do so. What this passage means is, it's not the word for freedom, it's a different word. It's the word for authority. But take care that this authority of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There are people that look to you as an authority. And you have a choice whether to do certain things or to not do certain things, things that are permissible. And we have to be very careful when we make that choice because there are people that are watching. And they may not be quite as mature in their their understanding of the new covenant 
as you may be. And we have to be very careful of the witness that we, we give. We need to be careful that we don't hurt others with our freedom. We have to be very careful the testimony and the witness that we give and the way we ex- exercise our authority because we may be a good or a bad influence on them. Don't be a stumbling block to others in the exercise of your freedom. So let me summarize it this way. Let me go back to the pursuit of happiness. What is a godly pursuit of happiness with all of this in mind? Remember I said it has to do with being, knowing, doing, and owning. Being, knowing, doing, and owning. Being, being. Jesus says, be what? Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. And you know what I've said about that before. I think that that means be all that God has created you to be. He created you for a purpose. He created you with a destiny. He created you with a will to fulfill. Do that. Become all God has created you to be. Knowing. Knowing is not just knowing about something. Knowing is not just knowing facts. Paul said to Corinth when he came to you, I came to you with one purpose in mind, and that was to know Christ and him crucified. Know the truth. Know the person of the truth, and the truth will set you free. The pursuit of happiness when it comes to doing, very succinctly put by Solomon, fear God and keep his commandments. This applies to every person, and this is a sum of things. An accomplishment, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will do what? He will direct your paths. An accomplishment, do the Father's will. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and you see everything else falls into place. Being, knowing, doing. And then what was the last one? Enjoying. It's okay for us to enjoy selves. It's not good to be self-focused, but it's, in, it's good as long as that's a godly satisfaction of our feelings, a godly satisfaction of our desires and passions and aspirations. It's okay to enjoy things. God blesses us with many things. He calls us to be what? Good stewards of his blessings And to remember what Jesus said, Paul tells us, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then what was it? Enjoy self, enjoy things, and then enjoy others. I think this is most important enjoyment of all. Human relationships. We do need to maintain wholesome, healthy, mutual relationships with others. And James tells us how to do that. We exercise the perfect law of liberty. What's he talking about? What is that perfect law of liberty as he describes it? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, and that's the perfect law of liberty, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and then you're doing well. You see, it gets back to what Jesus said, the golden rule and the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how to enjoy others. But the enjoyment is not complete. For we're to enjoy another eternally. And it's not just how we enjoy each other. It's how we enjoy God. And I'll say it again. What is the chief end of man? What's the chief end of woman? And that is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Enjoyment 
The psalmist says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The pursuit of happiness ends where? At the eternal throne of God. He's the one who made you. He's the one who created you to be who you are. And he beckons you to come and to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the liberties that you have given us. We thank you as we heard Jim pray this morning. We live in such a great nation where we have many, many freedoms, and for this we rejoice. We thank you for those who have laid down their lives, who have stood in harm's way to, to protect the Constitution of this United, these United States and to guarantee that we continue to have those freedoms. But we're reminded that you are the one that has given us liberty. You remind us that your son Jesus Christ is the only one that can bring true freedom. And our prayer this morning is that if there is one who has heard your word this morning, who is still in bondage and slavery to sin and destined to eternal death, that that person will surrender his or her life to your son Jesus Christ. That you will set them free through his ransom, his atonement, his shed blood, Draw them into your kingdom, redeem them, and give them the hope and the certainty of eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.